So, wow, welcome everybody. This is the largest Thursday night gathering I've seen in a while. And it's so interesting. Um, last night in San Jose, we had the largest group we've had in a long time. And somebody who was here Monday night said Monday night was larger than it had been in a while. I don't know. It must be in the air. It's wonderful. So how many of you um, have been practicing less than a year? Oh, not too many. Okay, good. How many have heard a talk on sila or ethics or morality? <laughs> a couple, not too many. Okay, okay, very good. Well, that's the topic for tonight. And I ask that because in Southeast Asia, where this practice came from, uh, generosity is taught first and then sila, or morality, ethics, before students are taught to meditate. Um, because it's understood that if you're not leading an ethical life, a moral or virtuous life, you're not going to be able to meditate. But here in the West, we start out with meditation and then go back and talk about generosity and ethics. So, sila is the Pali word actually for conduct. But I'll be using sila, virtue, morality, ethics, um, integrity, sort of interchangeably. And... Ethics really is the basis of our practice. It's a foundational practice. Like generosity, it's really foundational to our practice. Without virtue and morality, we can't have a practice. It's just that uh, integral. It's that much a part of our practice. So, virtue is one of the ten paramis, paramitas, or perfections. You may have heard that term or those terms. The ten perfections are those qualities that we both cultivate and that arise (coughs) uh, on the path to enlightenment. So, they're very important qualities. In San Jose right now, we're doing a series on the ten paramis. And um, virtue is the second one. Virtue or morality is also part of the Eightfold Path. the The Eightfold Path is divided into three sections, as you may know. Wisdom or panya. Um, sila or ethics and um, meditation or concentration, samadhi. So the middle three of the Eightfold Path are right speech, right livelihood, and right action. And those are the three that comprise the virtue or the sila section. Often, sila or morality are considered, is considered to be following the five 
precepts. And the five precepts, of course, are, are the basis of morality. However, I'd like to suggest that we expand that, that it's not just the five precepts, although the five precepts pretty much covers our actions. There is, underneath everything, the idea of ahimsa, or non-harming. So that's very foundational to virtue. The idea of whatever we do, whatever we say, that we see it through the lens of non-harming. That that's the basis for um, deciding what we do, what we don't do. We can also think of it in terms of skillful or non-skillful. And I urge you to read in Gill's book the chapter on virtue. I don't remember the number or the page, but um, as always, you know, very skillfully, Gill has written about the value of virtue. It's said that there comes a time in our practice when it becomes impossible to break the precepts. They are so integral, there's so much a part of the path and so much a part of us that it literally becomes impossible to break them. There's no, there's no desire. There's, there's absolutely no need or desire to break the precepts. So that leads me to say that in Buddhist practice, it's important to remember that the precepts are not commandments. They are not dogma. They are not absolute. In Buddhist practice, we see the precepts more as guidelines. They are questions for us to wrestle with, for us to live, for us to explore, and to bring our attention and our caring to every single situation. So this means... You know, it's not just A, B, C, D, thou shalt not. It means that these are guidelines. These are ways for us to look at every action in our lives and to struggle with. Because it's also true that it's impossible to live and not break precepts. Um, the first one, of course, is not killing. And we all know that we kill inadvertently every day, all the time. It's impossible not to uh, inhale bacteria, say, or even little gnats sometimes <laughs> or whatever. It's almost impossible not to kill some small being as we walk on the earth, even if we're really mindful and careful. Um, inadvertently, we step on an ant. We, we step on some small bug. But also in Buddhist practice, there's no idea of sin. There's not this notion of sin or sinner. Nor is there the notion of guilt. So when we recognize that we have broken a precept, We are not to feel guilty. We are not to feel 
decide that we are a bad person. We are not. There is, in this practice, the idea of remorse. And what we mean by that, really, is accountability. So if we break a precept inadvertently, or sometimes we do it on purpose, um, it's important that we acknowledge that, that we admit it to ourselves, sometimes to somebody else, although that's not always necessary, but at least to ourselves, that we have broken it. And it's important that we see what the consequences are. The consequences to ourselves, perhaps the consequence to somebody else, depending on what we've done. And to be really clear, to be really mindful about what we have done and what that consequence is. Then that allows us to recommit, to decide that we will not do that again. But we don't do it feeling guilty or feeling bad about ourselves. That's extra. Somebody once said that guilt is the price you pay for doing it again. And probably you've all seen that. I certainly have. You know, you feel so guilty, and then you go and do it again. Guilt doesn't seem to be very effective for stopping us. However, paying attention, being mindful, being very aware of the results of our actions is very helpful for helping us to keep the precept. So just to review what the five precepts are, the first is that of not taking life or honoring, respecting life. The second is that of not stealing or not taking what is not freely offered. And the positive is the practice of generosity. The third is not misusing our sexuality. And the positive would be honoring our bodies, honoring uh, our sexuality. The fourth is that of not lying or not you know, telling a falsehood. Um, The positive of that is the practice of truthfulness, of being honest. And, or we might say just right speech, wise, careful speech. And the last is that of not intoxicating the mind. Or the positive is keeping a clear mind. Towards the end, I'm going to read you the precepts in uh, two other traditions. One is the Zen tradition and one is Thich Nhat Hanh's order of interbeing because uh, they're expanded and they're fuller. But these five precepts that we practice in the Theravada tradition um, are the oldest teachings. They come from the Theravada teachings, the oldest teachings of the Buddha. And I think they basically cover Ethical conduct is just that the others um, uh, expand on that conduct, and so I think they're very useful for us to know and understand. So with ethical or virtuous conduct, there is both an outer action 
And that outer action is representative of an inner state of mind. So it's not just sort of rotely following the precepts, but our actions should follow a clear, a compassionate, a purified mind. We talk in Buddhist practice a lot about intention. And that's a lot of what we mean. But in the teachings, it says more than intention. So it's not just intention, but the fact that we have purified our mind-heart. That we have practiced and um, and worked with the... Uh, the hindrances, the uh, obstacles that get in our way. And so our ethical conduct, our action, comes out of that clear and purified mind. So again, that kind of expands it. It's not just, I will not kill. (laughs) But I have purified my mind, body-mind, and my skillful action comes out of that. That's probably where the saying comes, that, that there comes a point where you cannot break the precept. The heart and mind are so purified, are so clear, that it just doesn't happen. We act ethically. We act with wise conduct. So a part of uh, practicing a virtuous life is then purifying our mind and purifying our hearts, which include all of the perfections, all of the paramis, uh, the practice of generosity, um, and seeing clearly, seeing skillfully what our intention is and what our action is. Following the precepts or leading a virtuous life also creates a true refuge, a true safety for us. Because if we are following the precepts, then there is no reason for anyone to want to harm us. It's also said that following the precepts Leading an ethical life leads to joy, or what's called the bliss of blamelessness. That is, there is nothing that we can um, be blamed for. There is not, uh, there's no breach of ethical conduct, and therefore we rest in happiness because we're living uh, an ethical moral life. And this leads to happiness and to joy. So just a little quote from Tan Jeff, who some of you may know, uh, the author of the book that is out on the table. Tan Jeff says, If it's uncompromising, your virtue protects you from any true danger from now until you reach nirvana. But he does say, if it's uncompromising. 
<laughs> and he's really, he's really clear about that. I'll say more about that in just a minute. But I want to say a couple more things about refuge. It's also said that the Dharma protects those who live in the Dharma. Those who practice the Dharma are also protected by it. It's also said that a virtuous life is better than life itself. That a single day in the life of the virtuous is better than a hundred years of a life devoid of virtue. So that suggests it's pretty important. So how do we know when we're acting in a virtuous way? How do we know when we're living with integrity? Well, there are three <clears throat> things to pay attention to. One is the body. We hear that over and over again in this practice, right? Pay attention to the body. What is the body saying? Well, it's true with virtue also or morality. If we pay attention to the body, we often get a cue or a clue that we are being virtuous or we're not. If we are not being virtuous, very often there will be something going on in the body to let us know that. Perhaps an anxiety, perhaps butterflies in the stomach, perhaps a tenseness or a tightness. So <clears throat> we can pay attention to the body and understand what is going on in our lives. The second is the mind. If we are leading a virtuous life, then we tend to have a calm, a peaceful mind, which is why virtue is practiced first in Southeast Asia before meditation, so that when we go to meditate, the meditation is calm, the mind is peaceful. So meditation is the third one that we can pay attention to. And those, those three, the body, the mind, and meditation, can give us a clue sometimes to whether we are living with integrity or whether we are not. Truthfulness is also another parami, another one of the perfections, but it's also very fundamental to virtue or ethics. And when we talk about truthfulness, we're talking about not only telling the truth to someone else, but to ourselves. Being sure that we are truthful, that we are genuine, that we are authentic with ourselves, and that we live from that authenticity. That we live and speak our truth, as well as being truthful with others. And this Living an authentic life leads to happiness. And this, I can tell you from my own experience, not only is it in the literature, but it's really true. When we live that authentic life, when we have the courage, really, to be who we are, it brings the greatest joy. And being who we really are, as far as I can tell, 
involves leading a virtuous life. Who I truly am doesn't want to break the precepts, doesn't want to be um, unskillful or immoral or lack virtue. So, I said that in this practice, the precepts are guidelines. They're not dogma. They're not commandments. They're questions for us to live. But also, Tom Jeff, again, in this article, and he said in, um, previously, if, if they are uncompromising. So, Tom Jeff, or Tanisaru Bhikkhu, says, The gift of freedom to be fully effective has to be unconditional, with no room for exceptions, no matter how noble they may sound of any kind. And he says, So the Buddha's position on the precepts was uncompromising and clear. If you want to follow his teachings, there's absolutely no room for killing, stealing, or lying, period. When I first read this article, you know, I was sort of taken aback. Here we're always talking about how their their guidelines and their questions to be lived, and, and that can sound like, you know, they are compromised or... So I thought about it for a while. How do I reconcile this? And then it became clear to me that that these are not opposing ideas, that really both are true. When we commit ourselves to following an ethical life, to following the precepts, that is sort of the umbrella. That is the overarching um, commitment that we make. And then within that, we understand, as I said a moment ago, that we will break them. That's just the nature of life, the nature of human beings. We will break them. But when that happens, we don't say, oh, well, I broke a precept. Oh, well, it's okay. You know, no big deal. They're they're just guidelines. They're not. No. (laughs) We don't fall into guilt. We don't fall into um, feeling like we're a sinner or a bad person. But neither do we just laugh it off. We come back to that commitment. Oh, yes, my commitment was to lead this ethical life. My commitment is to follow the precepts. I've broken it. Okay, I acknowledge that. I recommit. And for me, that's the meaning of uncompromising. Tom Jeff, in this particular article goes on to talk about war and killing and <clears throat> suggests that there in Buddhist teaching there is no basis for war. There is no, uh, nowhere he says does the Buddha say that, well, this war is okay or, well, it's okay in this circumstances. He, he says no, it's just not. He says the only excuse for killing or the only reason to kill is killing anger. <laughs> Now, I want, to, I want to remind you that at the time of the Buddha, anger was considered the same as ill will or hatred. In this day and age, we make distinction. 
we understand that anger doesn't have to mean ill will or killing. But at the time of the Buddha, that was the understanding. So we can kill ill will or hatred, but nothing else. And he says that the Buddha said self-defense was okay, but not to the extent of killing. So we defend ourselves. You know, we don't have to stand there and let somebody pummel us. Um, we can defend ourselves, but not with the intention of killing. Now, of course, defending ourselves, it's possible that that would happen, um, but that would not be our intent. We would not strike back with the intent of killing. We would defend ourselves and possibly hurt somebody doing it, but without the intention to kill. So again, these are things for us to ponder. This is the Buddha's teaching. This is what he says. Um, Tan Jeff says that the Buddha made it clear that these are uncompromising. So how do we live skillfully with these uncompromising um, guidelines, <laughs> directions? That is the task for each of us, I think, to explore and to to wrestle with in each and every instance, in each and every decision we make about uh, a precept or an ethical issue. Someone suggested recently that that every single decision we make is an ethical decision, that we're constantly, we're always making an ethical decision. Or we might say a skillful decision. That in this practice, every decision we make is based on whether this is skillful or not. Whether this um, is harmful. Whether this leads to suffering or whether it leads to the end of suffering. So there's um, a visual image of um, a virtuous life from uh, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, I believe. Yes. An article called Nourishing the Roots, Essays on Buddhist Ethics. And for those of us that are visual, um, I think this is helpful. True principles of conduct as the base or the soil uh, just as the soil contains the nutritive essence essences required for the tree to sprout and flourish so do the precepts contain the nutriment of purity and virtue required for the growth of the spiritual life So the principles of conduct act as the base or the soil. The roots of virtue will give birth to the trunk of concentration. The concentrated mind shoots forth the branches of wisdom. And the branches of wisdom yield the flowers and the fruits of enlightenment, culminating in total freedom from bondage. 
So I like that, that image of, of the tree. We use the image of a tree a lot in this practice. And, and the roots go deep into the soil. And the branches of wisdom sprout from the concentrated trunk. And then the flowers and the fruit of that wisdom um, flower the tree and lead to complete freedom. So there's, in this book, The Teachings of the Buddha, there's... uh, A page from the Dhammapada on virtue, which says, The perfume of sandalwood, rose bay or jasmine, cannot travel against the wind. But the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind, as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, Fashion from your life as many good deeds. So in the remaining few minutes, I would like to read to you the ten precepts from the Zen tradition. And this is from Robert Aiken's book. Robert Aiken is the Roshi in Hawaii. The practice of perfection. Number one is take up the way of not killing. Number two, take up the way of not stealing. Number three, take up the way of not misusing sex. Number four, Take up the way of not speaking falsely. Number five. Take up the way of not giving or taking drink or drugs. Number six. Take up the way of not discussing the faults of others. Number seven. Take up the way of not praising myself while abusing others. Number eight, take up the way of not sparing the Dharma assets. And what that means basically is not withholding the Dharma, but sharing it freely with everyone. Take up the way of not indulging in anger. I think that word indulging is important. We recognize there is anger. And anger can at times be useful. That's a whole other talk. (laughs) But not indulging in anger, not feeding or fueling our anger. Number ten, take up the way of not slandering the three treasures. The three treasures being the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So you notice the first five were the same. The second five are really an expansion. Um, a lot on, on wise speech. Then Thich Nhat Hanh, who some of you, maybe all of you, have probably read or heard, wonderful, very wise Vietnamese monk. 
um, I think he's so well loved because he really, um, I think he's what's called an intermediary. He takes the teachings and then he says them in a way that we can all understand and that we can all apply to our lives. So they're not just, you know, dry teachings, but they really have meaning and they really connect to us. So I think his way <clears throat> of saying the precepts is so valuable. And this is taken from his order of interbeing. You know how Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how we all inter-are and everything inter-is? <laughs> this is the order of interbeing. The first precept. Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. Boy, that's a big one, huh? How many, how many religions can say anything like that? That is one of the unique qualities of Buddhist practice. That, that we're open to any other truth and any other practice. And we literally say, you know, don't hold to idolatrous truths or beliefs. The second precept. Do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless. Absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. That's our mindfulness practice, right? That we observe what is actually happening, not what we have some idea is happening. The third precept. Do not force others, including children, by any means whatsoever, to adopt your views, whether by authority threat, money, propaganda, or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrowness. The fourth precept. Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. The first noble truth. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contact and visits, images, sound. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. The fifth precept, do not accumulate wealth 
while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. So it's appropriate that we have the second harvest barrel out there, right? That we have the opportunity every time we come to share with those less fortunate. The sixth precept. Do not maintain anger or hatred. As soon as anger and hatred arise, practice the meditation on compassion in order to deeply understand the persons who have caused anger and hatred. Learn to look at other beings with the eyes of compassion. And compassion was one of the um, qualities of the purified mind. When we purify our mind, then compassion is there. The seventh precept. Do not lose yourself in dispersion and in your surroundings. Learn to practice breathing in order to regain composure of body and mind, to practice mindfulness, and to develop concentration and understanding. The eighth precept. Do not utter words that can create discord and cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts however small. The ninth precept. Do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things that you are not sure of. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. The tenth precept. Do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit, or transform your community into a political party. A religious community, however, should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflict. The eleventh precept. Do not live with a vocation that is harmful to humans and nature. Do not invest in companies that deprive others of their chance to live. Select a vocation which helps realize your ideal of compassion. The twelfth precept. Do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. The thirteenth precept. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others. 
but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. So he always talks about not only ourselves, but that we have a duty to those around us as well. The 14th precept. Do not mistreat your body. Learn to handle it with respect. Do not look on your body as only an instrument. Preserve vital energies, sexual breath, spirit, for the realization of the way. Sexual expression should not happen without love and commitment. In sexual relationships, be aware of future suffering that may be caused. To preserve the happiness of others, respect the rights and commitment of others. Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing new lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new beings. So I'd like to suggest that, um, particularly this following week, that you pay attention to your ethical life, (laughs) to virtue, morality, however you see it. And specifically to pay attention to how you feel, what you experience, when you're acting ethically and when you're not. Be aware, you know, if you have the inclination to do something that you know is unethical, be aware of that. Be, if you follow through, if you do it, be aware of how that feels, and then see what the feeling is afterwards. Do you experience remorse? Does it play over and over again in your mind? Likewise, when you choose to act in an ethical way, when you choose to follow a precept, notice how that feels. Notice your intention. Notice how it feels to have that intent. Notice how it feels as you're doing whatever it is you're doing, and notice what you feel afterwards. How does it feel to have chosen to act ethically when you've come up against a choice? You know, sometimes we just, hopefully most of the time, we just act ethically, but we all come up against choice points. Um, A very small one for me, but that comes to mind is, because a couple of times in the last several months I've had the experience of going to a movie where somebody, the other person I was with was paying and having that person, my mother in one instance and a friend in another, um, say, too senior. So, of course, it's less, right? Well, for most theaters, I'm not quite (laughs) eligible for senior. (laughs) And so in both instances... There was this urge to say, uh, no, not me, and, and I didn't. And the reason I didn't in both instances was because they were paying. <laughs> I was quite clear if I was paying, I would have said something, but they were paying. And so the dilemma was, you know, do I, do I speak up because I'm not whatever it was, 64 or 5 or something, um, and embarrass or make this other person pay more? 
or what I chose to do was be gracious and their ordering, let them, you know. But I bring that up because, number one, it's it, it's pretty small in the scheme of things, but it's the kind of thing that we come up against all the time. And so if we're really mindful, then we see these these places. And I don't know, you know, whether what I did was ethical. For me, at the moment, it was the most skillful. You might make a different choice. But that's the meaning, I think, of of living the precepts, living these questions, and struggling with, you know, what what do I do? And probably in another situation, if there was somebody different pain, I probably would speak up. I mean, there's the possibility of, of just saying, um, oh no, you know, I'm not quite 65, and then handing them the extra three or four dollars myself, or whatever. So, are there questions, comments, uh, thoughts? Ethical dilemmas. <laughs> Large or small. This is a small one, but to me it's big. I live in a wooded area, and there's a lot of spiders. And I had a black widow in my bedroom, and I I killed it. And I prayed as I killed it to send it on to a higher life. And anyway, it was my personal. It was a personal prayer, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like how I feel when I do it, but I don't like black widow spiders and mosquitoes too. And I, I, anyway, can you give me some? (laughs) That's just the kind of thing. Loving feedback on that. I I go through a a whole remorseful thing about it, and but I pray for them, and I light candles, and I go through this whole thing. But I'm. The I reality, don't want them hanging out in my bedroom. Well, I the really reality don't. is that black widows are poisonous. Thank you. So uh, one way of looking at it, I guess, is self-defense. <laughs> and probably, I'm guessing, that um, other spiders you don't kill, that you take them out? Or... I do. I was recently at a Buddhist function where there were mosquitoes. And um, a well-respected Buddhist teacher said something like, somebody said something about killing them, and she said something like, be my guest, or go ahead. And she said, just like you, we can wish them a, a better rebirth or something. I was pretty surprised. <laughs> this was a Zen teacher. And um, when it came my turn to speak, I just asked the group or suggested to the group that I would prefer that we didn't kill the mosquitoes, that we, you know, brush them away or whatever, but that we not kill them. 
So there it is, you know. Um, is she right and I'm wrong, or me right and her wrong, or I prefer to see that there are different answers, and that we each we each are responsible for our own answer. We each do what feels right to us, and we live with consequences. And sometimes, you know, we kill a black widow. It may be the most skillful thing to do, and we feel bad about it. That's just <laughs> that's just life. You know, it was it was so interesting that I did it so quickly. Uh huh. And it wasn't like I was doing it to be mean. It just, I had no, I just went, oh, my God, you know, and, and on to the next. And, oh, you know, and I talked to my guru and let a camera through all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but um, I had no remorse, uh, really, about, I mean, I just did it so instantly, like, you know, and I've been bit by by one before, mm. and I got very ill from it. Yeah, and so it was an old, I think, trigger in my mind, sure. a fear. Sure. You know, here's this black little spider right near my bed. So enough of, of what I have to say, but thank you, and um, thank you. Uh, I just uh, pray for its little soul, because I know <laughs> it has a soul too. <laughs> right. Right. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, you were saying that um, maintaining uh, an ethical life can um, actually protect you, mm-hmm. because um, there's no reason for uh, for ours, uh, others to to mean you any harm. And that may be true, but in some cases, and I was thinking about, um, for example, the Tibetan people who, I guess, uh, were raised in, in, with Sila in mind. Right. And still, um, other people really meant harm um, for them. Yes. So maybe you can comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know what to say. As I said it earlier, I thought exactly that. Not the Tibetan, but I thought that. Um, It's like the book, you know, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I think, for me, life is a mystery. And um, the reality is, in this earthly life, there is no absolute protection. There is no guarantee of non-harm, the reality is we will all die. I mean, that's that's true. We don't know when or how, but we'll all die. So in that sense, there is, there's no safety. I think, for me, the refuge is, it's, it's a, an internal, it's a, an emotional, a psychological, a spiritual refuge. It doesn't necessarily mean that that no harm will come to me. It does mean that um, how, how to say it that that I can handle whatever comes to me, 
that I will deal with it, that um, that I'm happy living a virtuous life, that that uh, in that sense I take refuge in it. Uh, that's that's joy for me. That's a worthwhile life for me. And um, and that whatever happens, I have myself. <laughs> I have my own freedom. I have the knowledge, the the awareness that um, at every turn I did my best. I think it's it's that kind of refuge rather than a guarantee that nobody will ever, you know, hurt me in some way. That in fact they probably will, both physically and emotionally. Um, would you say that karma can be uh, an explanation for for that? Or? Sometimes, sometimes. Uh, karma is a, a big and complicated subject. And when I say that, I always want to make clear that I don't see karma as linear, <laughs> as just cause-effect, you know. Karma, um, certainly, as, as I've said, there are results of our actions. Um, but karma is so complicated and depends on so many things. And sometimes in the West, uh, maybe in the East too, but certainly here, karma gets tossed out in very inappropriate ways, and sometimes even in blaming ways, or in callous, uncaring ways. Well, that's his karma. So I think we have to be very careful. Yes, there are consequences to our actions, good and bad. Um, and it's said that sometimes karma has to play itself out. It's also said that, that karma has to ripen. So sometimes... We do virtuous things, and the results of that don't show for some time. Likewise, the opposite. We may do unskillful things, and sometimes the, the results of that don't show for a time. So it's, it's very complicated. I think skillful to remember that whatever we do does have a consequence. And, and it can be mitigated. You know, if we act unskillfully and we recognize it and um, we recommit and we make amends, perhaps, if that's appropriate, then um, we can mitigate the effects of karma. Does that answer? Well, it's just nine o'clock. Um... So shall we just sit quietly for a few seconds, 30 seconds?
may any benefit that we may have gained from our practice here together tonight be shared with all beings as we leave here and travel to our homes or wherever. May we be aware of all beings that we pass. Wish them well and wish them ultimate freedom as we do for ourselves. So thank you all for your attention. Have a safe travel home.